As we come to our scripture reading this morning, uh, today's reading uh, begins into a new series uh, in which we're looking at the book of Proverbs. And this particular reading is very short, but very powerful. I think as we think about the words themselves and what is being said here, it communicates something that uh, we are to hear uh, as a central theme in the book of Proverbs itself. And so hear God's word this morning from Proverbs chapter 1, reading verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this week we get a series, like I said, the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're going to be walking through a series that, if you remember the last series was called Generous Life. This series is called Smart Life. So how do we live a life that's smart? Uh, not one that would be the alternative to that. We're going to find in the book of Proverbs all kinds of uh, ideas and, and uh, ways that, we, that can shape our lives so that we do, in fact, live what is called the smart life. Well, let me start this morning with a story of two hikers. I read the story a number of years ago about these two hikers that were, they're out hiking, they're going through the mountainous peaks, and they find themselves on top of the peak of a mountain, and it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. Have you ever gone for a hike or out to a, a, an opening where you thought it just took your breath away? Like you, just, you got out to the clearing and it's like, whoa, that's the payoff for all this hard work. Look at this view. Well, that's how they were feeling. At that very moment, uh, they, are, they are standing on this mountain, they're seeing the rest of the range, and they're thinking, we should make note of where we're at so we can come back here again. And so they pulled out the map. Remember those maps? They pulled one out, and they're turning it this way and that way, they're surveying it, looking at it. The first hiker then takes, and he goes, well, let me see that, and he's reviewing this. And then he says this to his hiking friend. If I'm reading this map right, we're currently standing right over there. (laughs) Clearly, their reading of the map was incorrect. Clearly, something was wrong there. Well, the ancient Jewish wisdom writer uh, who writes our text here would want us to read the wisdom map correctly, would want us to, to see things the way they actually are. But to do so requires a very particular ingredient, which begs the question, What's the ingredient? <laughs> What's the ingredient that we need to look at? To answer this, we need to go back to the beginning. Now, not back to the beginning of time, but back to the beginning of the book of Proverbs itself. If you look at Proverbs chapter uh, 1, verse 1, we see right away that the book itself is going to be associated uh, with a king, a king who's known in history for being wise, King Solomon. Though there's other parts in the book itself that actually have uh, superscriptions that say they're attributed to others. But this is a book that's rooted within the wisdom tradition, and it's one rooted within a historic figure uh, who's known for wisdom. But then in verse 2, we have what is called the prologue to the book. And reading from verse 2 down into our present verse, we get to see the contours of what, it, what wisdom's role is and, and the purpose it sets, the table that's set before us when we talk about wisdom itself. And I might add, it's a very long sentence if you look at verses 2 through 6. But it's this, this playing out of what wisdom looks like. And it's here in verse 2 that we're introduced uh, to these two words that will show up in the latter part of our text. The two words being this, hokmah and musar. The words wisdom and instruction. It's the stuff that fools despise, is what our text says. And we'll come back later to what that means. And of course, for those who seek wisdom... It holds the promise for both the unlearned and the wise alike. 
great promise of such things as understanding and being one who deals wisely for righteousness and justice, as you think about these grand categories of what it means to live the right way, for equity and shrewdness. Uh, these are all categories that are contained there, prudence and learning and skill. In other words, if you want to live your best life, if you want to live your best life, which is kind of a, a popular thing folks are saying these days, if you want to live your best life now, you'd pay attention, you'd heed these ideas of hokmar or Hokmah and Musar, wisdom and instruction. Those are keys to the smart life. But as important as these are, as important as these two categories are for our lives, there's still one that's more important to begin with. There's one that we're supposed to start our journey with, an ingredient that's so essential that we're not to miss it, according to the biblical writer. In fact, that particular ingredient is this, the fear of the Lord. You miss this, according to the biblical writer, and you've missed something significant. Many years ago, I took a group of middle schoolers on a mission trip uh, to a local camp. And actually, as I look across the room here, I think I know someone who might have gone on one of those trips to the local camp is here in attendance this morning. But we had a hard day of work. We did a lot of work around the camp, working outside, clearing all kinds of blackberry vines and doing, you know, just really labor-intensive work, and even more labor-intensive when you're trying to lead a group of 12 through 14-year-olds in that work. <laughs> but we were tired, we were spent, and I remember sitting down at dinner and just hearing the excitement of these kids as we sat down after a hard day's work, and we're going to have this delicious meal, and right in the middle of the table were delicious churros, right? You know, those kind of those sticks that have the cinnamon all over them and the sugar, and they're just super, super delicious. And you could hear the kids just kind of the glee, you know, going through the entire dining hall at that moment as they got excited. We're going to have a churro. I told them they had to wait till they ate their dinner. Don't want to spoil your dinner. But that table was, that bowl on the table was so inviting. And so as they were sitting there waiting for that, dinner got finished and then those sounds of glee that were reverberating throughout the dining hall were suddenly replaced. They were replaced with the sounds of horror and shock because the partakers soon discovered that the churros themselves were mistakenly not covered in sugar, but instead they had been covered with salt. <laughs> A key ingredient was missing. <laughs> you know what happens when that ingredient's missing. It could all look, it could all look right. It could look appetizing and appealing, but that ingredient's missing. It's a complete change. So our pursuit of the smart life, we're not to miss the key ingredient of fearing the Lord. But what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? When you consider various divine visitations recounted throughout the Scripture, you remember these as you've read through the Bible, you see different places. Uh, there's a lot of fear expressed in those moments. Remember Adam and Eve, right? The man and the woman in the garden. God comes in the garden. What do they do? They hide. What happens when Isaiah encounters uh, God's throne room? He says he's doomed. His, his life is going to come to an end. Or even think about the resurrected Jesus who shows up to his disciples. They think he's a ghost. They're frightened. They're afraid in those moments. In these places, these startled characters each time are greeted with words of blessing, words of peace, words of don't be afraid, but we're shaken in our boots. It doesn't take much imagination then to think that fear of the Lord is talking about that. That when you hear the word fear, that that is what the author has in mind. But 
that's not exactly what the biblical writer is talking about here. In fact, Bruce Waltke makes this point in his commentary. He says, we can't really understand what a butterfly is if we just study the words butter and fly in isolation. <laughs> right, I won't really tell you what a butterfly is. Yeah, and it's the same thing with the fear of the Lord. It's a compound that can't be understood by, in isolation, studying the words fear and studying the word Lord. Instead, we have to look at the way it's used throughout Scripture. And when we do, according to Walke, here's what we see, two things. One is this, the fear of the Lord entails an objective revelation that can be taught and committed to memory. So it's something that we can, we can know, it's something that we can learn, and we see that in particular texts like Psalm 34, 11, which says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Right? So you can see it's something that can be instructed or taught. And as we continue to read in verse 12 and following, it becomes clear that that way uh, that can be taught, it has very specific contours to it. We also see in Psalm 19 that fear of the Lord is related to references to the law and the command. It almost serves as a synonym in that, in that text. The second thing that Walkie would say is it's not, though, just a rational type thing or something that we memorize or learn, but the fear of the Lord also entails an emotional response that we have of fear, of love, of trust. In Deuteronomy, we see that this ideas of, of loving the Lord and fearing the Lord work interchangeably. We actually see that in chapters 5 and 6, uh, where there's a connecting piece between those, those things. The, the writer is moving back and forth between using love and fear, but using the same context for each one and, and playing that out. We see uh, when Israel distorts this, think about in Isaiah's day, when Israel tries to make fear the Lord just about how I respond, or just a rational type uh, pursuit. What does Isaiah say to him? He says this, remember what God says, because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. The fear of the Lord is not merely rational. Their hearts were far. They were going through the motions. They were doing the stuff. But God says, your heart wasn't there. It wasn't in there. So seeing this as being objective revelation, that it can be taught, but also an emotional response of fear, love, and trust. But how do we wrap our minds around those categories? How do I make that a way that I'm going to remember tomorrow? Like, how, how do I get to a place where I can say, okay, the fear of the Lord is this, and here's how I, how I do this at work? Or how do I do this when I'm at home? Or how do I do this when... My son or daughter doesn't clean up their room. Or how do I do this when I don't clean up my room? <laughs> like, what does this look like for us? Well, at this point, David Hubbard uh, offers what I think is a very nice, compact definition for us of what fear of the Lord is. And he uses these words. He says, reverent obedience. The fear of the Lord is this. It's reverent obedience. It's this idea that uh, if we borrow from C.S. Lewis, remember back in Narnia, he talks about uh, when Aslan's uh, talked about by Mr. Beaver. What is, Aslan, what is Aslan described as? Is Aslan safe? Of course not. But Aslan is good. And we can see in that, we understand that God is not safe, but God is good. Reverent obedience is an appropriate response. It's one where we know that God is bigger, that God is more powerful that we're not going to tame God. And at the same time, 
we joyfully live into a life of obedience in response to our Creator who loves us. There's that recognition here that everything in life, I have a new way of looking at it. I have a new perspective because of that. I'm seeing uh, things through that lens or through that perspective. I'm looking at life, again, in reverent obedience as I look at my work, as I look at my school, as I look at my friendships and my community. I'm seeing all these within the lens of who God is. And I'm taking my knee and I'm bowing it to God's will and God's commands. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And when we live that way, what happens for these recipients, these people living with this fear of the Lord, is that we come to know that we're rooted in the God who is. That we're recipients of the fruits of that God's wisdom and instruction for us. That we begin to unlock and understand what the writer of Proverbs is saying. In other words, when we fear the Lord, we come to a place where we can read the map. We can understand what it says. These, of course, are all contrasted with another group. All right? There's the fear of the Lord group, beginning of knowledge group, but there's another group that's mentioned here in our text that willfully miss the benefits of the smart life. And why do they miss that? Because they reject not only wisdom and instruction that are offered uh, to them, and that's offered in these pages, but the very one who gives them wisdom. That's who they reject. They don't lack intelligence. They don't lack education. They don't lack role models. They have simply dismissed the source. They have said, I do not fear the Lord. And we're not supposed to be part of that lot. So my question this morning for us is today. I mean, this was written a long time ago. Is this, is this for today? Is this wisdom for today? Do we need this? I mean, we live in a modern technological age. Do I need the wisdom that God provides for me? Do I need to live the smart life that's recounted here in Proverbs? Do I need to live these things? Or was that for another time? Maybe we've got higher ways of thinking. Well, I was watching and listening to the news this past week, and maybe you heard the same news stories I did that might help us understand if we need wisdom today. A sculpture was sold at an auction last month. Did you hear the story? For what accounted, amounted to $18,000 in U.S. dollars. It was sold in Europe. The artist, Salvatore Garar, sold the sculpture, which the most astonishing part for me in the story was the fact that the sculpture was invisible. <laughs> for $18,000, someone bought a sculpture that's invisible that was described as being made of air and spirit. If you're interested by chance in buying a sculpture, I've got one out in the lobby I'd love to sell to you. <laughs> We're not beyond needing wisdom in this day and age. How about the second story I saw? According to a recent eMarketer.com study, Americans now spend more time on devices than we do sleeping. Spend more time on devices than we do sleeping. The thought here is that a lot of this is due to COVID, right? So we've all been moved into different devices and streaming, that sort of thing. And the, the general thing would be, yeah, we're going to, once we get past the pandemic, we're going to suddenly, uh, these things, these numbers will correct themselves. But that's not what they're thinking. They think that these increases, many of them will stay, will remain, that they're new patterns for life and living that we've adopted for ourselves. All this time that we spend on devices, we're shaping ourselves. 
We're conforming ourselves to a certain way of life and living. And it's not all bad. I'm not going to say that that's, that's been all something that's been evil or terrible, but we have been shaping ourselves. Perhaps we might be ripe for instruction in our own day. And so here we stand as moderns, maybe even postmoderns, maybe even post-postmoderns at this point. But here we stand in this place. Where do we find, where do we find that wisdom and instruction? Certainly the book of Proverbs will be set the course for us. We're reminded of a story in John's gospel. A story of Jesus who has, at this point early on in the gospel, has many followers. But in John chapter 6, something happens. And number of these disciples, these earliest disciples, turn and leave. They don't like what Jesus is saying, and so they leave. They heard something that didn't agree with them, and they said, we're out. We're going to go do something else. But there were still some who followed. An inner circle that Jesus turns to at that moment, and he asks them, do you wish to go away as well? And you'll recall what Peter answered at that moment. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So friends, like those earliest disciples, one of our callings here when it comes to wisdom is we're supposed to stick around. We're supposed to stay around for the wisdom and the instruction in the presence of a loving and living God. So as we close this morning, I want to draw our attention to a 2015 article in Psychology Today that was entitled, Nine Reasons You Need a Personal Motto. Right? Nine Reasons You Need a Personal Motto. And observe that such mottos can increase productivity, they can inspire, they can even help you change a habit. Right? So we've got to have a motto. A few of the specifics they said were these. A personal motto can remind you of who you are and what you stand for. They also said a motto can jog your conscience, remind you of your values, and even teach character strengths. I like the sound of these. These sound good, right? These are good, good reasons to have a personal motto. A motto can give you encouragement that will help you persist. These are all good. And of course, we know that mottos can inspire and move us. Uh, we see them emblazoned on hats and t-shirts. We see people tattooing their bodies with them. Uh, we might put a bumper sticker on our car with a personal motto with that. And so we like to see ourselves keeping our eye on the prize. We like to seize the day, right? You get your motto going on there. Of course, life quotes also function similarly. Some of you might say, I want a little bit longer or something. And so I'm going to go with a life quote. And you've heard life quotes like Dolly Parton, who said, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. So maybe that's what you want as your motto as you go forward. Or even Kathy Geiswhite, the creator of the comic strip Kathy, who said, when life gives you lemons, squirt someone in the eye. All right? So you can have all sorts of mottos in life. Life quotes that go with us, and of course, you won't be surprised to hear there's a Christian version of this, right? There's a Christian version. Christian version we often talk about are life verses. We're asking young people to tell me what your life verse is. If you're 16 years old, what's your life verse? We get a lot of Jeremiah 29.11s, all right? You get a lot of Philippians 4.13s in response. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? If I was to ask the ancient wisdom writer how they might answer what their motto would be. If I was to ask them at this moment, what would be your life quote? What would be your life verse? What would be the thing to hang your hat on to say, this is who I'm going to be and this is how I'm going to live? They would answer 
different. They wouldn't go to Jeremiah. They probably wouldn't go to Philippians, probably because it wasn't written yet. (laughs) Where they would go is probably Proverbs 1-7. And they'd say to you and me today, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not only where we begin, it's also where we live. Friends, may it be so in our day as well and for our lives. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your great love once more. A love that is shown to us in the instruction and teaching the good word of Scripture. As you've revealed to us a path that we can walk that illuminates before us. And Lord, a life that we can live that would be faithful in response to you. Lord, as you've been gracious to us, you invite us to live in places where we might be loving and gracious to all the world where we might live true lives of worship. And so as we consider what this means for us, as we ponder to hear your word, Lord, we pray that these things would be placed deep in our hearts, that we might live them each day of the week. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.